beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the coming weeks, our focus will be on the sacraments. The sacraments are signs and seals by which God assures us of His promises. They are symbols through which the Lord speaks to us. If they were man-made symbols, they would not give us much comfort. Yet they were instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. At the last Passover, Jesus commanded His disciples to eat the broken bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of Him. Just before He ascended into heaven, Jesus commanded the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of our triune God. The fact that the sacraments were instituted by Christ gives us great comfort. Through them, our Savior presents us with pictures of His love. The bread and wine of the Lord's Supper represent Christ's body and blood offered on the cross. The water of baptism presents us with a picture of how Christ washes away all our sins. And so we see that the sacraments were instituted by Christ to express His grace and love toward us. When we look at baptism, we see an outward washing. But it's not this outward washing that saves us. The outward washing is only a picture, a picture of an inner, of an invisible washing. In baptism, God promises to wash us spiritually. Through Christ's blood, He promises to wash away the guilt of our sins. And through Christ's Spirit, God promises to wash away our pollution or corruption, to renew us more and more so that we will live for Him. I preach to you God's Word under the following theme. Our baptism signifies and seals our washing in Jesus Christ. We'll consider the washing away of our sins through Christ's blood and the renewal of our lives through Christ's Spirit. This afternoon we read together from Matthew 8 about a man who had leprosy. The predominant form of leprosy in those days is what we today call Hansen's disease. It is a bacterial infection that attacks the skin and nerves often resulting in a loss of feeling and of muscle control. The loss of feeling often results in unintentional injuries. The loss of muscle control can cause muscle atrophy, even paralysis. In advanced stages of this disease, a person's flesh would rot away. Having leprosy was considered a living death, and thus this illness was greatly feared. In Israel, the result of being diagnosed with leprosy was that you would be declared unclean. Because God dwelt among His people, and because He is holy, all those who were unclean were not allowed to worship God in the temple. They were forced to live outside the city in isolation. Anytime a leper wanted to travel in the proximity of other people, he had to cry out, unclean, unclean. As he walked down the road, anyone who touches a leper was considered ceremonially unclean. Imagine having leprosy, suffering deformity, seeing your flesh rot away. Imagine being on your own, separated 
from contact with family and friends. Imagine never being able to go with God's people to worship Him in the temple. In Israel, leprosy was considered a graphic picture of sin, something that made you unclean, that forced you to live in isolation. The man in Matthew 8 came to Jesus and knelt before Him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out His hand and He touched the man, something no other Jew would ever consider doing. For normally touching a leper would make you unclean. Yet Jesus said to the man, I am willing, be clean. Matthew tells us that immediately this man was cured of his leprosy. By healing this man, Jesus showed that he was the Lord of life. He took away the living death that this man experienced. He healed this man's disease. He redeemed his life from the pit. He made it possible for this man to be declared clean again, for him to be able to live in the community and worship God in the temple. A life-changing, life-renewing action for this poor man who had been afflicted with leprosy. Yet that's not the end of the story. Jesus said to him, Go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Here the Lord Jesus refers back to what was required of people when they were cleansed of infectious skin diseases. We read about that in Leviticus 14. The regulations recorded there make clear how a person was to be made ceremonially clean. Please understand that these regulations did not provide healing from an infectious skin disease. These regulations were given so that someone who was healed could be made ceremonially clean. The regulation stipulated that a person who was healed needed to be sprinkled with blood seven times before he was pronounced clean. Then a person was required to wash his clothes, to shave off all his hair, and bathe himself in water. After that, he was allowed to come into the camp, but required to stay outside of his tent for seven days. Again, he was required to shave off all his hair, to wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Then he would be clean. On the eighth day, he was required to offer various sacrifices before the Lord. Once a guilt offering and a sin offering were sacrificed to make atonement for him, he was again considered to be ceremonially clean. From this, we see that already in the Old Covenant, washing with water was part of a cleansing ceremony. This applied not just to people that needed cleansing after being healed of infectious skin diseases. It applied pretty much to anyone who made himself ceremonially unclean. And beloved, that happened regularly in everyday life. It happened every time a woman got her period or gave birth to children. It happened any time a couple engaged in sex. It happened to anyone who touched an unclean animal or had contact with anything or anyone who had died. In each of these situations, you're required to wash your clothes to bathe in water before you were considered ceremonially clean. What's the point? 
Well, to get back to the example of leprosy, it was not washing with water that healed a person of their infectious disease. Instead, the washing with water was a symbol of the person's cleansing, of his or her purification. The water of baptism functions in the same way. Water itself does not cleanse us. It does not take away our sins. Instead, the water of baptism is an outward sign of something that happens internally. The outward sign of baptism is that of water washing away dirt from our bodies. We're all familiar with that. We all experience how water cleans us. Whether we immerse ourselves in a bath or are sprinkled with water coming out of a shower head, we're made clean in the process. Well, water is the outward symbol that God gives us to teach us about how we are cleansed from all our sins. Yet this washing with water is more than just a sign. It's also a seal of God's promises. Not only does God give us a picture of how our sins are washed away, He also gives us a pledge, a guarantee that we are cleansed from them. The promise that Christ gave with baptism is that as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly His blood and Spirit wash away all our sins. We need to consider, beloved, that, it is our sinful st- that our sinful state is much worse than that of any leper. A leper is someone who suffers from a physical ailment. The result of his disease is that he's physically cut off from communion with God and his people. He had to live outside the camp, not allowed to worship God in his dwelling place. Yet we as mankind are in a much worse state. The fall into sin was rebellion against God. Through it, we incurred great guilt. We offended God by our sin. With the fall into sin, we also became corrupt by nature. In and of ourselves, we're inclined to hate God and our neighbor. And we sin against God in so many ways, piling up guilt against ourselves. Spiritually, we've cut ourselves off from God. It's our sins that make us unclean in God's sight. Our sins form a barrier that prevents us from having communion with Him. The result of all this is that we're condemnable before God. We deserve spiritual and eternal death. What baptism teaches us is that even though we deserve death, God promises life. Baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. Through His blood offered for us on the cross, Christ promises to cleanse us from all our sins, to make us righteous in God's eyes. Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so, beloved, when we see parents present one of their children for baptism, 
We see God's mercy and grace portrayed before our very eyes. Even though our children are conceived and born in sin and of our nature worthy of coming under God's wrath, our Lord makes great. He makes wonderful promises to them. Christ has promised to wash away all our sins by His blood, to forgive us the many ways in which we transgress His holy commandments, to restore us to communion with God now and forevermore. And so we may rejoice in our baptism and in the baptism of our children. Baptism is not just a custom or a habit that has no meaning. Instead, it signifies and seals to us the sure promises of our God, points us to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Just as water washes away dirt from our bodies, so Christ's blood washes away all our sins. We rejoice in God's grace. Through Christ, we've been redeemed from our sins. Instead of suffering condemnation, we're restored to communion with God. Brings us to our second point, and it will consider how our baptism points to the renewal of our lives through Christ's Spirit. The fall into sin had two consequences. With the fall into sin, we became guilty of disobedience against God. And so the guilt of our sins had to be paid for. Yet with the fall into sin, something else also happened. We've also become corrupt by nature. So baptism involves a twofold washing. In our first point, we've seen how Christ's blood cleanses us from the guilt of our sins. And now we'll focus on how Christ's Spirit washes away the impurity of our souls. What we need to understand, beloved, is that with the fall into sin, our nature became totally corrupt. By nature, our heart is so polluted that it's a wellspring of all kinds of evil. Left unchecked, our inclination is to sin repeatedly against both God and our neighbor. And so we need to be renewed. Something in us needs to change. To turn the direction of our lives away from sin and toward the service of God. Otherwise, as polluted beings, we will just continue to sin more and more. In our baptism, God the Holy Spirit makes rich promises to us. He promises to come and live in us. To make us His home. There's a reason why He promises to dwell in us. It's to renew us. The Spirit promises to cleanse us from the pollution caused by our sinful nature. To change our lives from the inside out. To work in us so that more and more we may be dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Our reading from Titus 3 makes this clear. In Titus 3 verse 3, Paul describes our sinful nature and the effect it has on our lives. He says that, We once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, living our lives in malice and envy, hating one another. That's how the world is without Christ. Sums up the history of humanity without the Spirit of God 
That's how we would all be left to ourselves. Let's examine this portrait of fallen man a little more closely. By nature, we are foolish, ignorant, lacking understanding. We only ever see things from our own self-centered point of view. By nature, we are disobedient. We rebel against God. We live lawless lives. We're resistant against God's commands. We've been deceived into thinking it doesn't matter how we live, that our sins will not have any consequences. Our minds were darkened. Satan gained mastery over us. Our wills were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We give ourselves over to doing whatever feels good, irrespective of the consequences. Our tendency is to do what pleases us, no matter what the effect might be on others around us. At heart, we only care about ourselves. By nature, we're inclined to hate our neighbor. That's a picture of fallen man. Not only does the guilt of our sins need to be washed away, our utterly corrupt sinful nature needs to be renewed. In our baptism, God has promised to wash us with His Spirit, to cleanse us from the pollution caused by our sinful nature, to renew us more and more in His image, so that instead of living self-centered lives, we'll more and more put off our sinful ways and live holy lives to God's glory. Paul describes how Christ washes us through His Spirit in Titus 3. After detailing the depravity of fallen man, Paul writes, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul makes it clear that our salvation is God's work. It's not due to anything good we've done. The only reason that we're saved from our defiled and polluted state is because of the kindness and the mercy and the love of God our Savior. Paul also details how we're saved from our sins and misery through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Spirit of God. Paul uses two phrases to describe the Spirit's work. He speaks about the washing of regeneration. Other translations speak about the washing of rebirth. It's about, that's what the Lord Jesus taught Nicodemus about. He explained to him how no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We need to have new life implanted within us. The Spirit needs to work in us to make us spiritually alive. When Paul speaks about the washing of regeneration, he has in mind the utter transformation that takes place in a Christian's life when the Spirit works in him. Seems like Paul has in mind the promise of the gift of the Spirit given through Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, God promised his rebellious people the blessing of his Spirit using the symbolism of ceremonial washing. He promised... I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Thus the washing by the Spirit describes a moral and a spiritual cleansing. Here is the basis for a changed life. Paul goes on to speak about how we need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Once the Spirit has caused us to be born again, He transforms our life from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Then, beloved, the direction of our life changes. We put off the old nature and put on the new. We turn away from being self-focused, pleasure-seeking people who continually walk in the ways of sin. By the renewing power of the Spirit, we learn to live our lives to the glory of God, seeking to do His will. This does not mean that we will be perfect in this life. We've not arrived in heaven yet. But it does mean that we have the resources to fight against sin. Through His Spirit, God equips us more and more to put to death the sinful desires of the flesh. The Spirit's power enables us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. He makes us willing and eager to live our lives according to God's holy commands. Our thankfulness for the wondrous salvation Christ has obtained for us. We've seen, beloved, how, our baptiz how in our baptism God makes very gracious promises to us. Promises to wash away the guilt of our sins through the blood of Christ. Promises to cleanse us from our polluted, sin-stained lives through the renewing work of the Spirit. In our baptism, God's grace towards us is signed and sealed through the sprinkling of water on our foreheads. Now, what is our response? Do we believe the promises of the gospel signified through baptism? Or is baptism just a quaint ritual that we practice out of custom or superstition? When you see one of God's covenant children receive the sign and seal of baptism, do you think about the rich promises God made to you personally? When baptism is administered, does this serve the strengthening of your faith? You see, beloved, for our baptism to mean anything, we need to believe the promises our triune God made to us at our baptism. We need to believe the Father's promise. He has adopted us as His children. He will care for us. He will provide all we need for body and soul. We need to believe Christ's promise to wash away all our sins through His blood so we're accounted righteous before God. We need to believe the Spirit's promise that He will dwell in us, that He will make us living members of Christ by working renewal in our lives. God's promises need to be accepted in faith. Otherwise, they will not benefit us. 
One of the great dangers of growing up in Christian families as members of a Reformed church is that we tend to presume that the blessings of salvation are ours. We make the distinction between those within the church and those outside. And we tend to think that those in the church are automatically saved. The Bible makes a different distinction. It distinguishes between those who believe and those who don't. The Bible gives us examples of various covenant breakers. People who were part of God's covenant people, but who did not embrace God's promises in faith. Esau was a covenant child, born to the patriarch Isaac. Yet he despised his birthright, the blessing normally given to the eldest son. He married women from among the heathen nations of Canaan. He turned away from the Lord and his service. Saul was the first man anointed as king over Israel. He was not from a distinguished tribe or a prominent family. And yet God appointed him to an honored position in the land. Saul did not see his blessings as coming from God. On a number of occasions, he blatantly disregarded the specific commands given him by God. Because he did not honor God, the Lord took away the kingship from him and from his family. Saul turned further and further away from the Lord. At the end of his life, we see him seeking guidance and direction from a spiritist in the land. Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' twelve disciples. Initially, he was very interested in following Jesus because it seemed like Jesus would rise to a prominent position in the land, that his disciples would share in his glory. Jesus mentored his disciples for three years. He showed them great love and mercy. But Judas never reciprocated this love. In his heart, Judas was a thief. He betrayed his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. We too, beloved, can easily neglect God's rich promises to us. It's so easy for us to go our own way and deliberately live a sinful life. To walk according to the old nature, finding pleasure in the sinful works of the flesh. Yet if we don't embrace the promises God made to us at our baptism, we shouldn't presume to share in the blessings of salvation. Those who reject God may expect that God will also reject them. And so, beloved, this afternoon the call of the gospel goes out to each one of you. Consider God's rich promises signed and sealed on your forehead. Promises to wash away your sins through Christ's blood and to renew your life by His Spirit. What God desires of you is that you respond to your baptism with faith and obedience. Believe that Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, you've been delivered from sin and Satan. Rejoice in the new life you may have from God and live it to His glory then you may share in the blessings of salvation now and forevermore. Amen.